Yeah, this I could be infiltrated. Your conversation won't be secure. <laughs> We've been compromised. <laughs> Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is April 27th, 2021, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Sarah. How's it going? How's it going today? Uh, you know, I'm feeling good. Uh, it's it's the end of April, so that means we're deep into the NBA and NHL play. Oh, wait, no, we're not. Those haven't started yet. I know. The calendar is so weird this year. It's really it's really taking a while to uh, to get used to it for me. Uh, and from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. The one thing that is correct on the sports calendar is that Saturday is the Kentucky Derby. It's time. First Saturday in May, Sarah. Yeah. And the very first the very first day in May, which is which is crazy. Earliest possible derby. Yes. Okay, Jeff, so you have 30 seconds to teach us every single thing about these horses. Oh, okay. Well, I need 25 seconds to teach myself about <laughs> everything about these horses. <laughs> The, I... And and then I and then teach you guys in five seconds. No, I mean <laughs> look, I, I'm a little behind. I'll be honest, it caught me off a little. It caught me off guard. It came in a so little early. hot <laughs> compared with last year. Um, yeah, and the other one was just the other day. So I have to pick my horses based on the name. Like the the best name is the one that I'm gonna want root for. Okay, I don't, well, I don't let's do them. best name. I mean, I think it's probably. So Soup and Sandwich? Yes, it has to be Soup and Sandwich. That's <laughs> a great horse name. Although there's also like three different, four different like bourbon options yeah, this midnight year. Midnight <laughs> bourbon. And then there's like... Bourbonic? Bourbonic. But those, yeah. I like King Fury. Not a bad name. I like Hot Rod Charlie. That seems like a real go-getter of a horse. Right. That horse has to be fast. Otherwise, it's just sad, right? <laughs> Okay. Yeah, it's so... just embarrassing. The favorites all sound like like business seminars, like <laughs> essential quality, known <laughs> <Yeah>. agenda. It's <laughs> like what is happening? These uh, names are yeah. terrible. Highly motivated. Yeah. Highly one... motivated. <laughs> How to become highly motivated with a known agenda to reach <laughs> essential quality? It's like what are we? Yeah, we're at like an offsite for like you know <laughs> self improvement. <laughs> Uh, I definitely think we should do that. We should actually have an offsite based on these horse names. Uh, soup and sandwich is mine. That's uh, that's what I'm going with. Th Thirty-one to one odds. I don't care. That's 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 a great name. We'll do that. On today's show, we'll talk about the NFL draft and what else is going on besides Trevor Lawrence's Jacksonville plans. Then we'll take a look at an up-and-coming NBA team making some waves. The New York Knicks just lost to the Suns, but the hype is still very real. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NFL draft is Thursday through Saturday, and we've already seen some exciting moves in advance of the big event. Most notably, San Francisco traded away a third round pick and first round picks in 2022 and 2023 to Miami to get the third overall pick this year and likely their quarterback of the future. Apologies to Jimmy Garoppolo. Draft watchers are fairly convinced that the 49ers want Alabama quarterback Mac Jones, but on ESPN's Get Up, Ryan Clark couldn't quite bring himself to believe that Jones is worth that kind of a move. If you ain't 35, 
right? And you don't have that wisdom and that experience, you cannot be a, nope, take that back. If you ain't 43, you cannot be a statue in the pocket and be <laughs> successful now. Which means if you ain't Tom Brady, you ain't supposed to go in the top five if you play like Mac Jones. So the fact that Mort can say it is 90% is crazy to me. When you make this move, Greeny, when, when, when the prince on Cinderella, right, when he had the ball and he danced with Cinderella, he was not looking for another chick that could almost fit the shoe, Greeny. He wanted the shoe to fit her because she was the one. <laughs> Mac Jones ain't the one. You don't do all that. You don't ride around the city to find a girl who wear eight and a half when the glass shoe is eight. Mac Jones ain't the, the third R pick. That's why I stand. If the 49ers do it, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Try as I might, I could not find Mac Jones' shoe size. So who knows if the slipper actually fits him. But but Neil, let's talk about his the stats we do know about him from college. Is is Ryan Clark right that Mac Jones is not worthy of a number three pick? Well, you know, it's always really tough to to judge a college quarterback by, uh, and their NFL potential based on the numbers. But if we are just talking about his numbers in college, I think people maybe are starting to come around on how great they were. But really, for the majority of the past year, he really hasn't gotten as much credit as he deserved for the numbers that he put up. So here's an interesting stat. We, we talked, I think we spent a lot of time last year around the draft talking about just how great Joe Burrow's final season at LSU was. And that ended up getting him the number one overall pick in the draft. Well, according to total QBR from ESPN, Mac Jones' 2020 was better than Joe Burrow's 2019 uh, by, you know, at least uh, like more than a point of QBR. It was 96.1 for Jones, 94.9 for Joe Burrow. Now, QBR is not the be-all, end-all as much as we love our uh, our corporate partners at ESPN. And also, it should be said that Burrow threw a lot more, you know, that year. He was kind of relied on more uh, in that offense for LSU than Mac Jones was for Alabama. Alabama, of course, had. But in terms of just, you know, efficiency, uh, Mac Jones set the all-time record for highest completion percentage in a season. Uh, he had more yards per attempt than Burrow did. He had fewer interceptions. It was, it was one of those monster seasons that I think maybe because of the supporting cast at Alabama flew a little bit under the radar, if that's possible. Uh, I mean, this is like, if, if we didn't have these preconceived notions about maybe Alabama not producing quarterbacks in the past, or maybe this idea that Mac Jones was, you know, not uh, not mobile enough or something, but it should be noted, his QBR out of the pocket was 93.9 last year. So I think we have a lot of preconceived notions about Mac Jones that it, it's it might, uh, the numbers are kind of shattering, but uh, it, it might be worth uh, rethinking some of those uh, on the basis of what he actually did in college instead of maybe what other Alabama quarterbacks have done in the pros in the past. You know, what Jones can do is he can just execute that Shanahan offense and he can do that pretty efficiently and not really make mistakes. But I think the ceiling is pretty low comparatively. I think we're talking about like an Andy Dalton or a Kirk Cousins type at best. <laughs> Which well, look, Andy you know Dalton how to hit and Sarah Kirk where it hurts. No, no, and this is—I'm not making a Vikings joke here. I, I, you know, I actually like Kirk Cousins as a quarterback. Just and, saying and, his and, name and, is making a Vikings joke. Sorry, and, and I, I triggered you. And, and I'm not talking about Dalton now. I'm talking about Dalton. You know, when he was on the Bengals and 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 was was pretty successful NFL quarterback. But that that is really what you're getting. Not that much mobility, but 
accurate, not incredible arm strength, but just effective at, at, at making plays. But the ceiling is not otherworldly like it is for some players. Well, th- I guess that's the question then. Like, there's a guy that you want who you think fits into your system, who you think you will be able to give you enough to take your team to the next level, whatever. Even if he's not going to be, you know, the next Andrew Luck is it worth trading into such a high pick to take someone who would be available later? Do you have to do that even if you even if you shouldn't? Is that is that how the draft should work? Does it matter where we think Mac Jones should go? Well, I think you know they wanted to guarantee one of the top four quarterbacks, or or the but look, there's not even consensus on who the top four quarterbacks yeah. are. But I think they wanted to get into that top four so that they know they could if they if they liked two of them, that would and you know you assume Lawrence is definitely going to the the Jags and, and Wilson's definitely going to the Jets. That means if you like two of them, you're guaranteed you're guaranteed one of them if you're in that top four. And I think that's what they were trying to do. So where does this leave Justin Fields? He didn't really. Nothing changed during, you know, during the during the season. We we thought of him as a really great quarterback. Why has he fallen so much, Jeff? Well, it's a couple things. I mean, I think it has to do with, you know, people just looking at the tape and look, he's not perfect. If you watch the tape, he stays in the pocket too long. He hold, He's not, first of all, he's not comfortable in the pocket. And then he, instead of stays in the pocket too long, he holds onto the ball too long and, you know, kind of waits around. He, he's not like very decisive. But personally, I, that's the guy I want the Jets to take. And then I think the <laughs> other, the other thing is like, you look at his arm, you know, his, his mechanics, his actual throwing mechanics, and there's some things to criticize in there too. So there are, he's not perfect, but look, not, none of these candidates are perfect. I mean, maybe Trevor Lawrence probably is perfect. Uh, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> Even he didn't look perfect in his final college game though. I mean, so right. I think you can find flaws with all of these guys. But I'm I'm fascinated by the rise of Trey Lance because he I think played one game in his final college season. Uh, but two years ago, I mean, he had amazing numbers for North Dakota State. But he had 28 touchdowns, no picks. But this is a guy that I always love. The guys that like during uh, college football season. We, we were not talking about Trey Lance and uh, in part because he wasn't playing, but uh, also like I don't think he was on anybody's radar. And that's why Fields versus Lawrence and, and maybe with some uh, Wilson mixed in was like the the talk of the quarterback class. But I do think it is that like tape watching phase causes some guys that are obscure like Trey Lance to rise really quickly. And then maybe some of the established guys that we pay attention to every week during the college season to drop and I don't know if that's right or not because like I don't know how much you're learning from tape from two years ago on Trey Lance for North Dakota State I'm not a scout so I wouldn't learn anything from it and these guys (laughs) are really good but we've seen like you know even the best scouts are can't tell you who who is going to succeed in the NFL at quarterback I think that's sort of like where we're at right now is there's not like a, a magic way to know who will translate to the NFL so maybe we've reached the point where we're kind of getting too cute with things and trying to outthink ourselves and being like well, we know a lot more about Justin Fields because we've seen a lot more of him and we know his flaws. And so people can kind of like project uh, wishful thinking more onto a guy like Trey Lance. But I don't know. Maybe Trey Lance will be the better quarterback. 
Well, I wonder too, you know, the the pandemic, the the pandemic nature of the past season, you know, we don't we didn't see Trey Lance play really almost at all. Justin Fields did not also did not play. Yeah, didn't play a much, full season. As we talked about a lot about how many games Ohio State played. You know, does Mac Jones look better in comparison just by virtue of having a full season and then also having all of Alabama's tools around him. I mean, it's I I don't know how you project these guys. It's hard to project these guys in the best of yeah, circumstances. It is. And this was not the best of circumstances. So there's no consensus. And I and I think Neil when you see a guy like Lance, you know, coming from a, you know, not even from an FBS school, there's always a reason that happens. Like, or a guy goes, to, you know, really top quarterback prospect goes to a really small school. And and in Lance's case, you know, he was in high school, he was playing multiple sports. And because he's got this size and this ridiculous athleticism, I think a lot of the Division One, the FBS, you know, University of Minnesota, which we was close to, wanted to turn him into a different position. They wanted him to play wide receiver. They wanted him, you know, to play safety or something that would more fit his frame and he wanted to play quarterback and he'll settle on what the only school that'll allow him to play quarterback it's kind of reminiscent although totally different of you know why did ben roethlisberger who's now what probably a hall of famer go to miami of ohio is because he wasn't even like starting in high school because he was behind the coach's son on a depth chart i wouldn't read too much into the north dakota state he didn't make the schedule there or he didn't, you know, make his, you know, he can't do anything about his competition at that level. But that being said, I do think he has not played a lot of quarterback and <laughs> is a huge project. But in terms of ceiling, it's much higher than someone like Jones, because if he can, you know, rise to his potential with that athleticism and that size, then he's going to be something special. He's going to be like a, a Cam Newton type player. And I think NFL teams, you know, a lot of NFL teams think they can they are the ones who can can reach that potential in a prospect. And that's probably what, you know, San Francisco is debating right now, whereas Kyle Shanahan looks at someone like Mac Jones and like, if I want to win next season, I can plug this guy in who played college football at the highest level under the most demanding coach under a very good offensive coordinator like I am and can execute and, and not make a lot of mistakes. When you look at it more that way, it doesn't seem so outlandish. It just seems, it just, you know, looking at the number three pick in the draft feels like someone who should have a higher ceiling. But you're going to draft for what your team needs, not what, you know, the chattering class has to say about it, probably. What are you guys hoping for your specific teams in the in the draft? Neil, what did you think about Philly trading the number six pick to Miami? I'm generally a fan of trading down, so I guess I was happy with it. I mean, the Eagles have a lot of needs anyway, and some of them are at positions where it seems like there are going to be some guys that they could get, like cornerback. I've heard a lot of talk about them um, taking a, a corner with that pick, and the Eagles... Uh, secondary was trash last year but also they need help at the offensive line and they don't have any receivers and their linebackers stink so there's a lot of ways that they could maybe improve things and if you have that many needs it does make sense to trade that down but then again there's been rumors in the past like day or two that they might trade back up into the top 10 so who who knows i i don't i don't know what they're gonna do <laughs> 
And Jeff, are you excited about Zach Wilson? Or are you, what do you think? What, how are you feeling about him for the Jets? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I was sort of in the camp that they didn't really do, obviously didn't do Darnold right. You know, threw a young quarterback, threw him into the NFL and said, here's a, a terrible offensive line. Here are no weapons and the worst coach in the last 20 years. Go. And <laughs> then they gave up on him. I don't think he was ever in a position to succeed. And I think, you know, talk about needs, you know, the Jets have needs basically everywhere except for interior defensive line and maybe safety. I mean, they need edge rushers. They need cornerbacks. They need interior offensive line. They need linebackers. They need a receiver. They definitely need a running back. They need so many things. You know, obviously, I'm not, you know, a talent evaluator or a QB coach. And people see a lot of, you know, great things. A guy who can make all the throws, a guy who can throw outside the pocket. You know, there's been these very generous to him comparisons to Patrick Mahomes, which we will certainly laugh at uh, in a couple of <laughs> years. Um, so, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic, but I think the main thing with the Jets is they just can't do the same thing again, which is put this guy in a position to fail. It's funny, like, you know, the quarterback's get get all the attention and, and all this the skill players in general get a lot of attention in the draft the vikings have the 20th pick and i'm hoping they just take an offensive lineman and just like boring someone that most people don't care about who will come in and do his job like that's all i want i want a super boring draft from my team's perspective that like is usually i don't know an okay sign well and this yeah, and this seems like the draft to be picking later, uh, especially, you know, I mean, again, going back to the idea of trading down and kind of getting more shots at it. But even just like we know so much less about all of these prospects in tw in the 2021 draft than maybe any other draft in the history of the NFL, at least going back to the days before they scouted and they would draft off the like Street and Smith's magazines like they did back in like the 60s. Every team except the Cowboys did that. So uh, I, I do think that this is the we might look back at this draft and find like a lot of diamonds in the rough just because nobody knows as much as they usually do. And they usually don't know that much if, yeah, if, yeah. <laughs> if history is an indication. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Well, the draft starts on Thursday. The first round is Thursday. Rounds two and three are Friday. The rest is Saturday. We'll see what all of our teams do and, and what everyone else does. But for now, let's take a break and then we'll be back to talk about the New York Knickerbockers. It's been a wild ride for the New York Knicks this year. Not only are they over 500 for the first time in almost a decade, but they had an incredible nine-game winning streak that ended last night against the Phoenix Suns. We talked about the Knicks briefly on the show last week, but we wanted to come back and discuss how seriously we should take this team and how much of an impact they're having, particularly in New York City itself. The Knicks certainly appear to be drowning out the team on the other side of the East River. On ESPN's first take, Stephen A. Smith explained just how far the Brooklyn Nets would need to go in the postseason to be crowned Kings of New York. The Brooklyn Nets are the number one seed in the Eastern Conference. They have one of the best records in basketball. They have a guy that I believe to be the best on the planet, if not top two on the planet, when he's completely healthy and an absolute showstopper in Kyrie Irving. And guess what? Barely anyone cares. 
Barely anyone cares in New York City compared to the Knicks, okay? Because the New York Knicks are the team that's buzzing. The New York Knicks are the one stealing headlines. Everybody is talking about the New York Knicks. So I got two things to say, Max Kellerman, as it pertains to that in regards to the Brooklyn Nets. Number one, the Brooklyn Nets must go to the NBA Finals. If they don't get to the NBA Finals, the New York Knicks will be considered a better story just because they got to the playoffs. They will be the talk of the offseason. Everyone will be talking about the New York Knicks. The New York Knicks will confiscate headlines from the Brooklyn Nets. Not that they haven't done it already. Let They've already done it. it. But I'm just saying it will be indelibly imprinted that the New York Knicks are the story and the Brooklyn Nets are, well, whatever, they're good, but that's what people will say about them. Neil, you took a look at the popularity of New York sports teams. Is Stephen A. right that Barely anyone cares about the Nets in the midst of this Knicks renaissance. Yeah, he, as, as much as it pains me to say, I think he is kind of right about that um, because historically the Knicks have obviously been much more popular. I looked at uh, Google Trends searches within New York City uh, about the teams. And so the Nets, of course, are before they moved to Brooklyn it's not a surprise that they would be a distant, uh, you know, distantly behind the Knicks in terms of uh, interest and popularity. Over the entire period from 2004 to 2021, uh, Knicks searches outnumbered Nets searches by a factor of 2.9. But what's really interesting to me is that since 2013, which is when the the Nets moved to Brooklyn, it's been higher. The the ratio of Knicks to Nets interest has been even higher. It's been 3.1 times higher for the Knicks. This year, it's only about twice as high. I guess that's progress. That's what happens when you trade for uh, James Harden and, you know, debut Kevin Durant and and all of the stars that they have but even then it really has been a case where uh, the Knicks have always had more uh, attention or more interest every single year in this sample the Knicks search index is higher than the Nets search index and that even includes years where I, I kind of went back and I looked at the star power that uh, were on some of those Nets teams when they first moved to Brooklyn because you had uh, Mikhail Prokhorov, the the enigmatic Russian uh, owner that wanted to make a big splash. He made some trades that perhaps in retrospect uh, were ill-advised, but they brought in a bunch of name power, and you can kind of see that in terms of uh, the career wins above replacement, according to our lovely Raptor system, for players on the Nets was higher than those of the Knicks in 2014, in 2015. Uh, and then it is obviously much higher this season if you look at all the players that are on the Nets. So the Nets haven't lacked for star power. They've tried to make a dent in this market. But it is uh, kind of amazing how the Knicks can have not many name brand players or players with like star power, Carmelo Anthony being you know sort of the exception for many years, and still just crush the Nets in terms of raw attention uh, from from people in the in the city. So that was even true before this run, before the. Knicks were like relevant in a playoff perspective uh, so now it's sort of I, I think it has kind of become even more glaring when like compared to what you would expect if you looked at all the players that were on the Nets you looked at the Nets odds of winning the championship you would expect 
oh my gosh, this is going to be, this is the team that people are interested in this metro area. Nope. Knicks still have twice the, the interest and this is their highest interest in any calendar year since 2004, according to Google Trends. I, I think it, it, it sort of makes sense. I mean, the Knicks, the bottom line is, and I, I've been saying this, you know, calling them a sleeping giant for a while in that they just have a lot of fans and it's hard to convert fans to another team. And when even when I say convert, I say like within families, like, you know, fandom generally, you know, obviously exceptions is passed on generation to generation. You, you generally root for the team your parents liked. And that, that's just the way it goes. And it's hard to penetrate a team that's been around for so much longer. Now, you look at something like baseball in New York, it's totally different. Because what happened there is that most Met fans are rooted one way or another in the old National League teams that used to be in New York and the Giants and the Dodgers. And that for a long time, you know, there was a, a National League fan base in New York and there was an American League fan base in New York. And when the two National League teams went to California, a lot of that fan base start because especially because it was really hard to root for a team in California back then um, in the 60s became no MLB fans. TV. And, <laughs> right. and and that's why you see a split a lot closer. I still think there are more Yankee fans than Met fans, but that's why you see a split that's a lot closer to 50-50. With the case of the Knicks, I mean, even when the, the Nets were in New Jersey, and this was certainly true with the New Jersey Devils, like most people in New Jersey still like the Knicks. So it was hard to even get a New Jersey fan base, and it's certainly hard to get a Brooklyn fan base. And we've seen this, you know, when hockey is, is a better comp to basketball. You know, we've seen the Islanders win four cups in the early 80s. The Devils win three cups in the 90s and early 2000s. And they still have way fewer fans than the Rangers, just because the Rangers have been around for a while. And they just have fans in Long Island and in New Jersey, in addition to the majority of the city. So even if you create a team out of nothing or move a team to a new location, you're not going to siphon away that many of their fans. You will get, you know, people moving to New York who are new to New York and you will get people who are just new to the sport who like like the new team, maybe maybe splitting from their parents along those family lines, as I was describing. You'll see more of that, especially if one team's very good and the other team's terrible. And that's a really interesting comparison with the Yankees and the Mets because we've seen cases it's it, it is it is rare the yankees are almost always the more popular team but there are certain cases like take for instance 2015 when the mets made the world series but even so far this calendar year more people have been interested at least in terms of how much they're searching for these teams in the mets than the yankees and the mets made the big splash they got the new owner they got lindor uh they're certainly doing better than the yankees to start this season but it does seem to be a little bit more elastic in in baseball in terms of the balance of power between those fan bases and a lot of it just has to do with like are the Mets interesting or not? And and theirs is the one that kind of fluctuates. That's why I find it so interesting that the Knicks versus Nets dynamic really doesn't have that much elasticity in it uh, comparatively, where it seems like sort of it doesn't respond to things like, oh, the Knicks are, are trash right now, which is the general rule before this season, at least. Um, and, and the Nets are doing interesting things that doesn't seem to have as much of an effect on the balance of power as it does in sort of like, oh, hey, the Mets have Jacob deGrom and, uh, pitching amazingly and they have, you know, some interesting players and they're doing, you know, as well or better than the Yankees. That seems to shift that in baseball more than it does in basketball, which is really weird and interesting. Maybe it just says something about basketball fans here in the city. It's interesting, too, that 
like, you know, with Durant and Irving and now Harden all teaming up at a New York team in a big market team, they probably got, I mean, not to, you know, drill this home and make Knicks fans even sadder, but they probably got the wrong team, right? Like if you're going, if you want a big market team with all the lights shining on you, you probably didn't want to choose Brooklyn. You should have gone to the Knicks because if people aren't, paying as much of attention then you know is it really happening right does it matter as much what an indictment of james dolan <laughs> i mean uh, we can kind of assume i think it's it's generally accepted that dolan is the reason why these free agents don't tend to sign with the knicks so yeah the fact that in their own backyard in in the neighboring borough uh the nets were able to kind of build that team that people that knicks fans have been dreaming of assembling at the garden for for decades is like, yeah, the ultimate indictment of Dolan, I think, in his ownership. Well, and I think we should think of the Nets as as a smaller market team than we think than we do because they're in New York. They're a big market, right? Brooklyn but has a higher population than Manhattan. Sure, but not as much <laughs> not as much interest in the team. So you know, I don't know. Well, all right, let's let's talk about these Knicks. Jeff, as a Knicks fan, can you kind of diagnose this? <laughs> Can you diagnose what, how, why they're successful right now? By Is it the just loosest definition of fan? Sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's mostly Julius Randle, to be honest. I think he's been spectacular. We, I don't, I, I'm trying. I was actually trying to think of players who who stepped up their game to a certain degree at this point in their career, and I don't think there are that many comps, to be honest. He's just especially from three-point range he's just gotten way better i mean he's better almost across the board in every statistic and he's really become a a frontline star i mean what what is it again the alpha nate system where he fits in now i would certainly think right now while he's maybe not an alpha a team you want to like build an entire you know championship set of stars around he certainly is this a number two so if they were to get, I mean, I don't think they're going to win the championship or anything close to that this year. But if you were to get a, like a, a number one and al- a true alpha, like someone like a Kawhi and, and, and pair him with Randall, I think that could be now enticing to a, a, a top level star because I think he is in that second seat firmly and he fits in that class with the, with the way he's been playing. And also, I mean, he had a bad game last night and and we saw what happened they lost he has been very consistent and that's why they've been winning a lot but when he does not you know the shots don't fall which is going to happen they are going to struggle and and we saw that last night i was looking at randall's shot profile over his career and he has completely changed where he's shooting this year i mean and and you know what taking way more threes taking way more mid-range shots it's really it's really interesting to see a guy change where he shoots with a new coach i mean i think tom thibodeau his influence on a team cannot be cannot be overstated like he's really changed this team which is wild and we'll see you know how long it lasts as we were joking last week he has and a tendency is, <laughs> yeah this is the classic tom thibodeau turnaround right in year one where the knicks were 23rd in defensive rating last season 
Thibodeau arrives. They're now fourth in defensive mm-hmm. rating. And really, that's the biggest change for them. I mean, they were 28th in offense last year. They're still 20th. Uh, and Randall is playing really well offensively. And yeah, to your point, Sarah, he's become almost like a totally different player in terms of where he shoots, but also his assist rate. I think friend, uh, our colleague uh, Jared Dubin did a story earlier in the year about how historic it was to have a player whose assist rate was, you know, Randall was like hovering, I think for three consecutive seasons, he had an assist rate of 15.8%, which by the way, he's the Chris Davis of, of uh, assist rates uh, before <laughs> that. But then he's boosted it to a 26.8 this year. There are not that many players in the history of the NBA that make an 11 percentage point jump in assist rate from one year to the other in the middle of their prime. I mean, it's like from age 25 to 26. You could see that from a developing player. You could also see that from a player joining a new team, but Randall was on the Knicks last year. So uh, there's there's a lot of factors there where he's just like found another level as a player. And then around him, yeah, you have a bunch of players that can defend. And you do have, you know, some other guys that can score to take some of the pressure off him. R.J. Barrett, maybe not the most efficient uh, numbers. Alfred Payton, maybe not the most efficient numbers. But it, it's a mix that is working for them right now. And, you know, it, it, it's tough to kind of look at something like our model that doesn't think that highly of the Knicks and sort of like be the, the, the bucket of cold water to pour on the excitement factor in the city around this team but I do think a lot of it does have to do with like that that offense not having changed that much and you know maybe defense being something that is you know less reliable as as a as a factor to rely purely on going forward you know with every team at full strength Raptor thinks New York is the 21st best team out out of 30 remember like not great um so so what's their ceiling then Neil how far can they go Well, I think they can win a playoff series depending on who they're matched up with. And maybe that says more about the East than anything else. But especially in the in the seed line that they're they're in right now, I think they're the four seed or they're tied for the four seed with Atlanta. So if you can kind of be in that four spot and then be able to face one of the teams kind of coming out of, um, you know, the bottom half uh, uh, once they've settled out the whole play in situation. That's good. Kind of a better place to be in. But yeah, the East is such a disaster that this is like the perfect recipe for the Knicks if they wanted to win a playoff series. So this is still sort of the best case scenario for the Knicks to have such a weak conference uh, lineup beneath them in the seedings that they can still potentially beat up on one of those teams. Okay, so to bring this conversation full circle, what is the bigger deal in New York City, Jeff? The Knicks winning a playoff series or the Nets winning it all? Oh, man. Well, I would I would probably say winning it all at that point. I think a championship <laughs> is is significant. Um, if you were to, <laughs> if you were to say make the finals first win a playoff series, I would probably actually go with winning a playoff series because I think a team that has been so bad for so long and given its fans nothing to give them a taste and and also really to make them a more desirable place for a free agent to land you know looking forward to pair someone with Randall as I was talking about earlier then that would be significant so it wouldn't even just be significant in terms of like boosting the morale of a of a really um disenchanted fan base i think it would also really help the team's future because i think you know i i think back as being someone you know who grew up in new york you know i went to one of those knicks bulls 
famous playoff games that you saw in the last dance. And the place was crazy. Like it, it, the the volume in, in Madison Square Garden was at a level that I've, I've never heard since. And I know that if that team is winning, it will all of a sudden be a very exciting place to play, regardless of, of, of what's happened in the past and who the owner is and all these other you know factors. It would be an enticing place to play. It just hasn't appeared that way for a long time. And that's why I think we've seen like no players since Carmelo has really wanted to go there. All right. Well, Nets, you have to win it all. But winning a championship, <laughs> winning a championship. Yes. You you got to win it all. The finals isn't enough. But there's pressure on the Nets. I mean, with that, that star power, in a lot of ways, they're expected. You know, it's a disappointing season if they don't go to the finals. So the, there, I think there is a lot more of the Knicks just playing with nothing to lose. Yeah, this is a franchise that they've won one playoff series since 2000 that <laughs> let that sink in it was the 2013 first round they they won uh one playoff series so it like i i was a little hazy on my memories before i kind of dug in for this segment about just how little playoff success the Knicks have had in this this millennia like it is kind of crazy to to talk about well soak it all in Knicks fans enjoy it now um and we'll see we'll see how far just how far they can go when the playoffs get started all right we'll leave this here for now let's take a break and then we'll be back for our rabbit hole of the week At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Today, I have something for you all. So I haven't enjoyed much in this young baseball season so far. Thanks a lot, twins. But I have enjoyed the play of one young player very much. We were a little worried going into this season that Fernando Tatis Jr.'s breakout season from a year ago had been a little fluky and that maybe he wouldn't be able to replicate that over a full season. And then we were worried earlier this month that the San Diego shortstop might miss significant time after he injured his shoulder. Tatis ended up missing only nine games. When he came off the injured list, he he looked a little rusty. After the Padres game against the Brewers last Wednesday, Tatis was sitting with a batting average of just 154 and an OPS of 600 with just two home runs and one stolen base to his name. And then he took a trip to L.A. Over the weekend, San Diego took three of four from the Dodgers in a wildly entertaining series, including a ridiculous comeback on Sunday Night Baseball. Side note, my Twitter feed was split like 50-50 between OMG this Dodgers-Padres game and OMG the Oscars, which was honestly perfect for me. I loved that. Uh, In 20 plate appearances in the series against LA, Tatis had eight hits and two walks for an on-base percentage of 500 with five home runs and three stolen bases. His OPS in those four games was an astronomical 1.778, ranking among the best four-game offensive stretches in recent memory. Tatis's stats during that series are, are worthy of their own rabbit hole for sure, but that, of course, is not the only thing I want to talk about out of that series. In Saturday's game, Tatis hit two homers off of Dodgers starting pitcher Trevor Bauer after the game, Bauer accused Tatis of peeking at catcher Will Smith as he put down the sign for the pitch Tatis hit out for his second bomb. 
Then there was this whole weird Twitter back and forth that involved Bauer referring to himself as daddy and Tatis then responding by calling him son. It was a all weird and very funny thing <laughs> that was like, what is happening? So when it comes to peeking at signs, Dodgers manager Dave Roberts said on Sunday, when you talk about peaking, that's just not the, the way you play baseball. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Fernando as a ball player, the way he plays the game. But if that is the case, which I don't know, that will be noted, which seems very ominous to me. That I want, I believe now that Dave Roberts has like a list of people who have wronged uh, the Dodgers in some way. So it's, it's far from clear that Tatis actually did peak. He did lower his head. You can see that in the video. But it's impossible to tell if that was on purpose or not, if he was like, you know, itching the side of his face or, or just moving in a natural course while you're batting. You don't see it when the video is at full speed. You don't notice it until you slow it way down and then and then look at it. What you can see then is that the sign had been given and removed by the time Tatis looked down. So the best he possibly could have gotten out of peaking was the catcher's location outside. And as um, as John Boy pointed out in a video breakdown of this whole thing, because of course, Bauer had been pitching Tatis away that entire at-bat. So in a way, pitch was not going to come as a big surprise to Tatis at that point in the at-bat. But I am fascinated by this entire debate. Stealing signs obviously continues to be a hot topic of conversation. The peaking issue doesn't get talked about that much, but but this peaking is actually super common, or at least it's very commonly accused by the pitcher and catcher. So Jason Turbo, author of the book The Baseball Codes, which is about the unwritten rules of baseball, has written about many of these incidents. Bob Gibson accused both Hank Aaron and Willie Mays of peeking at signs. Turbo wrote that an opposing coach said Ken Griffey Jr. would call a, a late timeout right before a pitch and look down to see the catcher's position at that point. Fred McGriff, Cal Ripken Jr., Alex Rodriguez, all were accused of peaking. Seems like good players that, you know, they some great players do this. I don't well, know. That is, that is my <laughs> question, though. If all of these well-regarded and, like, pillar-of-the-game type players have been accused of trying to see where and what a pitch is, is it wrong? Is it, like, how is it even wrong? If one of the rules of baseball is that you have to conceal and change and disguise your signs so that they cannot be stolen by the other team... How do you act surprised when people are, in fact, trying to steal them? That is the entire point. That's why you change signs. That's why the catcher places the sign at a spot where it's harder to see. Otherwise, you just, like, flash up a symbol up in front of him and say, hey, send this, instead of, like, the the whole rigmarole that they, that they go through. It's the whole point of that. You wouldn't be changing your signs if not for the implicit understanding that someone is trying to steal them. So I don't know if Tatis was really breaking yet another unwritten baseball rule as as he is wont to do. So there is that. I do know that Trevor Bauer has accused a lot of people of cheating in one way or, or another, including the 70 percent of pitchers in the game. He says use an illegal substance at some point. Of course, Bauer himself is at the center of an MLB investigation for that kind of cheating. So, hey, who knows? 
At some point, it feels like we're going to have to admit that Dave Roberts is wrong and this is all part of baseball and it's fine. And no one should be put on a list of names to be reckoned with at some point in the future. And we shouldn't throw at people's heads for for peaking, which has also happened. And it's just part of the game and do a better job concealing your signs. I don't know. What do you guys think about all that? I'm 100 percent on Tatis's side here. Like, first of all, if Trevor Bauer wants to get mad, then get mad at Smith. Get mad at him for not concealing the signs better, you know, or, or change the signs. Like, we're going to say his eyes have to be completely facing forward through the entire time he's in the batter's box or he's breaking an unwritten rule. I mean, can you imagine in football if a quarterback got mad at a safety because he was looking at the quarterback's <laughs> eyes to see which way he was throwing. I mean, it's almost closer <laughs> How dare to that. you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, there are ways to avoid it. And and by the way, if it's so much of an unspoken rule, you know, like stealing a base in a blowout or swinging at a 3-0 pitch in a blowout, and you want to go out and like hit him with a pitch, like fine, that's baseball. You, you can do that. That's how they enforce their silly little kind of unspoken rules. But don't, you know, litigate it on Twitter. And, and <laughs> otherwise, it looks like it's just sour grapes, which I think in a lot of cases it was. Well, uh, and also, like, if you threw it to Tease at this point uh, in, in retaliation for breaking some unwritten rule, you would have to actually tell him which offense that it was for because there's there are like so many it's like was this for covering my eye when i was running over uh, running around the bases was it for the bat flip oh no sorry it was for peeking at the side okay all right then, then that one that one i've been punished for the other thing he did during that home run the the peaking home run after he crossed home plate he did the bauer strut thing that, yeah right exactly that, that bauer does but which conor mcgregor actually does um so like there were so many things just in that like one game that he he could have been throwing at him for if he if he chose to do that i mean bauer's such a troll he yeah, and, well, to bauer's yes. credit though uh and we don't often give him credit but uh he he did sort of say like it's that part the the back and forth of the like gamesmanship of taunting versus you know counter taunting or whatever bat flipping uh is is part of the game and he didn't hold that against tatis which often you know uh, old-timey baseball folks have tended to say say basically what dave roberts said uh about you know bat flipping and all uh, and and uh celebrating which is oh it's not part of the game it's not the right way to play the game and bauer was like no this is kind of how the game is played now and i needed to make a better pitch but it is interesting that he couldn't let it go to extend to the whole like was he peaking or not uh controversy yeah it's not even cheating and it's part of the game and it's it, uh, you're right it's akin to the the runner on second taking the signs or something like that which always happens and they it should always happen have, and it's always the happens point. And yeah. then the onus is on is on the battery, is on the pitcher and the catcher to change something. And there are ways Will Smith can hide those signs better than, you know, where you can look down and see it right before a pitch is coming. So, you know, the, blame the catcher. And just for the record, I'm, I'm giving Bauer a hard time. Ba Trevor Bauer's great for baseball. And Fernando Tatis, likewise, is great for baseball. I love villains. I love this kind of thing. They and, might be the two best guys for baseball right now. And this is yeah. without you know the astros with their elaborate cheating system not good for baseball this is good and i think these kind of rivalries and these feuds for two teams that are going to play each other a lot and may play each other in the playoffs this is exciting and makes it fun so good on both of them for having personalities and i agree being with interesting. you i agree with you on that part 
I don't agree with you that the Astros are bad for baseball. Their whole team is villains. How can you not like that? Um, I'm more cheating, please, for me. I will say, <laughs> Trevor Bauer, you threw like six straight outside pitches. Like, shut up about the cheating. Tatis was also, going pick, to get one of them. Or whatever it was that he it's threw cutter, was way outside. Uh, so, like, good good job by Tatis. Like, even if you knew that was coming, 99.9% of players yeah, yeah, yeah. in baseball cannot homer off of that no. pitch. He's one of the <laughs> only ones that can do it. So, like, you know, you just got to tip your hat to him at that point. And at the end of the day, the Dodgers... The Dodgers won the game. So that was another reason I was like, are you kidding me with this complaining? This like this this blaming it on peaking? Come on, dude. It's also a compliment. He should be flattered. You know, Tatis doesn't need to take such measures against a lesser pitcher. That's probably why Bob Gibson, people were doing that against Bob Gibson because it was hopeless most times facing Bob <laughs> right. Gibson and they needed any edge they could get. So Trevor Bauer, you know, you should feel honored that he had to take such measures in order to hit a homer off you. Also, the other thing to do if you think a batter is is peaking at your sign that's outside is then throw it inside like like it's not that hard although i did find another instance in jason turnbow's writing um what where this happened in the maybe the 70s where a pitcher and and catcher thought the guy was was peaking he had threw threw the sign and the location outside and then threw it inside hit him in the face (laughs) and like knocked out some teeth so things can go really wrong (laughs) So don't do that. <laughs> Baseball in the 70s was just awesome. Baseball is wild. And and the I more mean, fun it is now, the better. There are no hitters on acid. People yes. throwing. <laughs> Doc Ellis. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I got to go back yeah. to the 70s and watch more baseball. <laughs> Check out those highlights. All right. Well, the, the the Dodgers and Padres will pay, play each other a few more times. So we'll uh, we'll see if there's retribution or or more peaking or just more really great home runs. Um, and the, in the course of those games, that will do it for this week's show. We will be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at five thirty eight dot com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.